Good morning. I'm glad to welcome you to our Sunday School class on Devoted to God's Church. Let's bow together in prayer as we begin. Father, as we uh, are gathered here today, we're glad that we can open your word and learn about you and about uh, what you have provided for us in Christ. Thank you for the church. And we pray as we continue to study the nature of the church that we grow in our appreciation for uh, for that bride of Christ that you have redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is our fourth lesson on devoted to God's church, thinking about the, the nature of the church. By way of introduction, I've been using this as a definition for the church, that the church is the gathering of a people called out of the world to belong to the triune God and to each other. And today we're going to be looking about how God has called us out in order to worship him. And I phrase it that way, thinking of how God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt to come to Mount Sinai for that purpose of, of worshiping him. We've seen that uh, Believing implies belonging and that, uh, that there is an individual aspect to our faith, but there's also a corporate aspect to our faith. And that corporate aspect is very important to, uh, to inform us about the church, that believing implies belonging. But uh, I want to uh, observe this morning that, that belonging is not the same thing as just coming to church. So you could come here to this room each week, but not really belong. Uh, you, you could uh, you could come and and be here physically, but not here in in heart or spirit. And to illustrate this again by way of introduction, I'd ask for a volunteer to read Acts two forty two through forty seven that describe what the people devoted themselves to. Vicki, would you read that? several aspects here that are emphasized in this passage that describe the activities or the things that the New Testament church were devoted to. Their belonging to God, their belonging to each other were expressed in these ways. And I'll just identify them and let you know that, uh, that as we go forward with the nature of the church, we'll develop them. But so you'll notice that they were, they were gathering together for worship. It says that they were at, uh, that they were even daily at the temple, and the temple is is significant of worship. Second, they were devoted to the teaching of the scripture. Here, it, it talks about the uh, the teachings of the apostles. 
Thirdly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. It was, it's listed specifically, and then it's spoken of in the idea of breaking bread together. And that could possibly be a reference to a sacramental meal or the, uh, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It is at least a fellowship that is shared together. Uh, and then finally, prayer. So four things, worship, scripture, fellowship, and prayer, and we'll take those up uh, week by week. Um, these are, are, are foundational principles for the church. They're how we I- enjoy being a people of God that are gathered out of the world and gathered to him. And you'll notice again that it's not just individualistic, but there's a corporate expression of this. In all four of those things, in worship, teaching, fellowship, and prayer, there's a corporate nature to it. And that, that's the emphasis that, uh, that we're taking throughout this, uh, this Sunday school class. They're sometimes referred to as the, as the normal means of grace. This, these are the ways in which God normally blesses his people. And I'll use that term uh, more, I'm sure. So uh, as a people of God, we, uh, are, we devote ourselves to these things as well. Again, following the New Testament church, we want to devote ourselves to worship, scripture, fellowship, and prayer. We want to keep the main things the main things, uh, to keep them central to the life of the church. So today I want to delve into the subject of worship and how the church is shaped by that, how we are devoted to that. We do that by uh, by looking especially at Isaiah chapter 6 in just a little bit, but we begin with a very brief definition of worship. Uh, Mark Jones has defined worship this way. Worship is giving glory to God for his worth in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit according to truth. I, I like this definition for, for several reasons you can see that the idea of giving glory to God for his worth is, the, uh, is in a sense, the action of, of our worship. And the word worship itself derives from the word worth that you see there. It is acknowledging that, uh, that there is uh, that God is worthy to receive this glory or worthy to receive our praise and our prayers. And so w- uh, worship you might, be, you might think of as worth-ship. It might help you to understand that. But you also notice that there's a, uh, there's a triune nature t- uh, to our worship that comes through in this definition. We give glory to God in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. And there's that aspect of the church belonging to the triune God. And our worship is an expression to uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you'll hear that uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout our worship services. We try to consciously acknowledge that we are coming to a, a triune God through the mediation of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. And finally, according to truth, and that has in mind what what Jesus says uh, to the uh, the woman at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well, that 
those who God is looking for to worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the, uh, there, is, uh, there are, are truths that are expressed, that are, are proclaimed. There are also truths that shape our worship. And that gets into what we would often call the regulative principle of worship. Just to demonstrate this definition, I've listed several uh, scripture passages here that I'll invite volunteers to take. And uh, as we read them, I just want—I want you to just notice how there is a giving to our God what is what He is worthy of. Let me just call these out: Psalm ninety-six, two, Mark; Isaiah fifty-two, seven, Henry; Psalm one hundred four, twenty-four. Dan, uh, Sean, I saw your hand. You want to take the next one? Uh, Psalm 67, 4, and then Isaiah 40, 25, and 26. Jeff, sorry, with Psalm 96, 2. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good, glad tidings of good things. Proclaim Isaiah 40, 25, and 26. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. That's just a handful of verses that you could look up to describe the that God is worthy and, and reasons why he is worthy to be praised. He's worthy just because of who he is and, and then what he has done in creation and in salvation. So to dig a little bit deeper into this, I want to emphasize especially how worship is, is an act that brings us into the presence of Almighty God, which is point two here. And in each of the next four points, I'm going to follow Sinclair Ferguson's development of this idea revolving around Isaiah chapter six. And in this passage, there is a, a, a telling of the prophet Isaiah who is brought into the presence of Almighty God, and it's uh, it's a uh, a very appropriate passage for us to look at when thinking about our coming into the presence of God to worship Him. So, uh, to begin with, I'd like to read verses one through seven. Have a volunteer to read that, Henry, and then we'll also be looking at specific verses in the midst of that as we go through. So, start with uh, all seven verses of Isaiah six. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live pole, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sins purged. So let me trace the idea just a little bit of how worship is a coming into the presence of Almighty God. In the Old Testament, the Lord gave the tabernacle as the first communal place to uh, to come to worship God. Tabernacle means a tent of meeting. And right there, even by that title, we have that sense of, of meeting with God or God being in the midst of his people. And that's what the Lord had promised, that he would live there, that he would be in their midst. He had covenanted to be their God and they would be his people. And the tabernacle right there in the middle of the camp represented his presence. It was a place of meeting with God to worship him and to renew covenant with him. Later, God commanded the building of the temple, which was a in a sense, a more permanent tabernacle amongst his people, but it uh, served that same purpose. He says directly that from the taber- or from the temple that this is where he would make his his name known in the midst of his people. Uh, it would be declared there, and that would go out and, in a sense, radiate out from from the temple to all of Israel and from there to the rest of the world. And it was there that his people would gather to worship. And Isaiah came to this, this temple to worship. And it is in the midst of that worship that Isaiah is caught up into this vision of the heavenly throne room of God, which takes us back to the very construction of the tabernacle and the temple when Moses was given plans for the earthly tabernacle, it was patterned after what he saw when he went up on the Mount Sinai. He saw the heavenly throne room and the heavenly worship. So the earthly worship was patterned to, uh, to reflect what is, uh, is, is happening in heaven. And as Isaiah is gathered into the temple to worship. He is caught up into this uh, heavenly throne room and into God's glorious presence. And this is a passage that I think we're, uh, you may be actually fairly familiar with. We often read it when we want to reflect on the holiness of God or the greatness of God. Uh, and being familiar with it, sometimes what's familiar is it becomes common. And, and because it's commonplace, we discount it a little bit. 
And I was struck a little bit by Ferguson's word as he tried to uh, try to capture some of the majesty uh, and to tell this in different words. So I want to read a paragraph from Ferguson so that you might uh, think again about just how awesome what happens with Isaiah is. And I'm going to apply that to us as well. So this is what Ferguson says. To Isaiah, the temple seemed bigger inside than it looked from the outside. Already, I hope your mind is, is blown a little bit by that. It's bigger inside than it looked like from the outside. The overpowering sense of the infinite God of the universe felt as though he was concentrating his presence in one place. He filled the space, and yet he could not be contained by it. So great was this sense of God that Isaiah could almost feel the train of his robe flowing down into the temple. He felt small, almost suffocated as, as it seemed to fill up more and more space. The pressure of the presence of God now seemed to be coming towards him, almost drowning him. So Maybe with different words that might remind you just of how awesome this occurrence was for Isaiah. And if you can capture that for Isaiah, the point of this lesson and really the point of worship is that very same thing, that every time that we come to worship, we are caught up into this very same experience. Spiritually, it, it, the, the, that reality is experienced by us. Isaiah was given to experience it in a, in a special way, both visually and with his ears and, and, and bodily. Uh, and that, uh, that's something that, uh, that will be fulfilled for us in eternity when we are body and soul in God's presence. But remember, though, that when we gather to worship, it is this very same experience that is the spiritual reality of worship, that through Jesus Christ, we come into the presence of Almighty God. There are many things that can distract us from that, though, aren't there? We can, we can come to think of worship in a self-centered way. We can get distracted by our own interests. That comes through in questions or observations about the worship service. What did I get from it today? Well, I didn't get very much. I wasn't very moved today. Or you may be distracted by the troubles that you've gone through this week. You may even be in conflict with someone, a brother and sister that comes to church as well. And so you think you can't bear to be around that person. But these distractions really miss the point. You come to meet with God. We belong to God and to each other. But the primary aspect of worship is that we come together to meet with God. 
and that focus will help define or help to uh, to shape what you get out of it. <laughs> it will shape your relationship with each other because your focus will be upon uh, God himself. I'll pause there and ask if there are any questions or observations about my introduction definition and this first point. Mark? Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a prophet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the truth of God's word is going to shape what we do, and that, that may be a lesson for another time, the, uh, that idea of, of coming to meet with God, though, as, as Marcus said, really does uh, orient us in a very different fashion to coming to church to say, what am I worth, what am I worthy to receive here? Uh, the whole direction of worship is, is God-focused, what is God worthy of receiving? So there's a humility, a, a, a praising of him that is our focus. Let's go on to number two. Worship involves proclaiming and praising God for his sovereignty. Worship has this, this covenantal nature to it, that the covenant God has claimed us to belong to him and has given himself to us. And in our worship, there is a, a, a renewing of that covenant that takes place. And part of that renewal has in mind a proclaiming to God and a praising of God for certain aspects of who he is and what he has done. It really does begin in Isaiah chapter 6 with his sovereignty you can see it especially in verses 1 and 4. In verse 1, the, uh, the uh, sovereignty of God is, is pictured by the throne of God that is high and lifted up. And that sense of his royal power pictured by the train of his robe that flows out and fills the temple. In verse 4, then, the very presence of God makes the posts of the temple and the door to shake and to shake at his at the voice that cries out and uh, fills that uh, that house with smoke so there is a proclamation of his sovereignty that is part of our worship and it's it's pictured in our worship service from the very beginning if you look at your bulletin for today, you'll see that the first aspect of worship is that there's a call to worship. And that is God himself calling you into his presence, which is an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. 
he is the one who is deserving of this worship. He is the one that has the authority to uh, open the way into his presence and to call and to command that, uh, that we come into his presence. So each week at the beginning of our service, that call to worship, uh, I choose a scripture that, uh, that makes clear that the Lord himself is the one who is making that way open to come into his presence, that he is the one who is inviting you to meet with him. And here in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah knows this sovereignty in a specific occasion as we do each week as we are drawn into God's presence. But think of the occasion of Isaiah being drawn now into the presence of the Lord. Verse 1 says that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. If you go back and read verses or chapters 1 through 5, you'll find that there's turmoil in Israel during this time. The nation is on a... a a long, slow spiritual decline that will lead to uh, to Jeremiah, which Alan is teaching about, and to the, the crying out of the laments that come when God brings judgment on the nation. Isaiah is before that, but is, is, is leading into it. You can see the people around turning more and more away from the one true God to worship and to serve false gods and the idols of the nations around them. And King Uzziah himself started out well, but then he didn't finish well. He grew proud. He grew self-reliant. He wasn't trusting in God. He took some of the holy things to himself. And there was certain judgment that fell on him and the nation because of that. So it must have been a disappointing time for Isaiah as a priest and as a prophet of God. But right in the midst of that context, though, God drew Isaiah into his presence and he demonstrated that he still reigned on his throne. That the throne, the throne of Israel may, uh, may be faulty, that, uh, may be frail, but the failure of the leaders of Israel did not change the fact that God Almighty reigns over all things. Even the decline of the worship of God in the nation of Israel, the the decline of the piety of the people of God, the decline of the safety of the nation, which are the children of God, those things don't change the fact that God in heaven reigns and that he is still worthy of worship. And Isaiah was granted an opportunity to, uh, to, to see that, to hear that, to experience it, and to communicate that to us and to the church descending from, uh, from Isaiah and from this vision. That's helpful for us because uh, we go through a variety of, of disappointments We are certainly in an an age of crisis for the people of God here in the West. And it can be very discouraging to see even churches themselves seemingly turning more and more away from the one true God to take up all manner of different 
different practices of worship or turning away from Christ himself. The reality is that God reigns. And each week in the cycle of the week, God draws us into his presence to honor him who is still on his throne. Now, there is something we get from that, isn't there? (laughs) We get something from that. It, It settles us in a time of crisis. It helps us to know that that though the nations rage and though though people may turn away, that God is unchanged forever and ever, and he remains worthy of our praise. So uh, worship involves that uh, proclaiming and praising God for his sovereignty. It's worthy of our worship. Thirdly, worship proclaims and praises God for his holiness. This is probably the element of this passage that is most well known. There are many that are drawn to the vision of the seraphim in verses 2 and 3 that fly around that throne room, worshiping God and calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. I'll be brief because I think a lot have have heard about the Hebrew use of repetition. The angels say three times, holy, holy, holy. This is not a mindless repetition of a word, kind of like a mantra might be used today in Eastern philosophies. Instead, it is a very specific use of, of a a poetic device in Hebrew. When uh, when we want to say things are, uh, or there there be an increasing intensification of something, we would say something is holy, holier, holiest. The Hebrews don't do that. They, They repeat words. And so there are often things that are said two times to place emphasis. Truly, truly, I say to you, would be an example. This is the only place where there are three words repeated. It's the superlative uh, uh, intensification of the holiness of God. If you want to read some more on that, I would recommend R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. So the angels communicate a sense of reverence and awe that comes from being in the presence of a holy God, a God who is utterly holy. That's significant for, uh, for all times and significant for our worship because a God who is not holy, is not worthy of of praise, is not worthy of worship. You might set this over and against some of the mythological gods that are merely men and women who are have more power or are somehow deified. 
but the mythological gods have all the foibles and errors that you find in men and women around you. And their mistakes are just more majestic and, uh, and tragic, maybe. Uh, but uh, those are not worthy of worship, are they? Uh, but God is, because he is utterly holy. And there is a sense of reverence and awe that we are struck with when we come into the presence of this holy God. And I hope that that also comes through in our weekly worship, that there's a, a sense of, of reverence that we try to communicate by uh, the way in which we speak about God, the way we speak to God, the way we pay attention to what he says. There's reverence and awe because God is holy. It's significant, too, because... This holy God has made a way for sinners to come into his presence. And I'll elaborate on that in just a moment, but for, uh, for this purpose, I want you to recognize that, that as sinners, that we have, have no way to come into the presence of a holy God unless he were to open up that way, which is exactly what he has done. The tabernacle and the temple prefigure it, but it comes through Jesus, the Holy One, who laid down his life to purge us of our sins, to cleanse us of our sins, to cover over our guilt and our shame so that we may truly come into the presence of God. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 speak about this. In fact, I think if you read through the book of Hebrews, the whole sense of Christ leading us into the presence of a holy God to worship him comes through. You might read through the book of Hebrews having that in mind, that Jesus brings us into the presence of almighty God. But on the point of this holiness, would someone read Hebrews six nineteen through 20? Jeff. The hope we have is an anchor of the soul, though sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered forth, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I remember preaching on this, and, and I hope that you see how stunning of a statement this is. And for those who were Hebrew that heard this, those who were Jews who heard this, it's saying that in Jesus, we're taken behind the veil. What veil was that? What's well, the veil of the temple that nobody went behind, except for the high priest once a year, and he only after sacrificing for his own sins. But in Christ, in worship, we are taken there. We are taken behind the veil into the presence of Almighty God. And our earthly worship in Jesus Christ is taken into the throne room of a God who is holy, holy, holy. Where Jesus is, we are, right? I want you to grasp that. Where Jesus is, we are. And worship is in the presence of God through the mediation of Jesus Christ, who is our holy redeemer. 
Once more, let me pause. I've given two more points, uh, questions or comments about points uh, uh, two and three here. Vicky? Wow, <laughs> really good question. And uh, I, I do think that your point about not understanding a monarchy is something that that uh, uh, does place us at a little bit of a, a disadvantage. We're all on a level playing field. Uh, some sense of that with, with those who are our rulers and some of the sense of uh, uh, respect to office that the president gives to us, but, but there is something about a monarch that communicates a, a majesty that may be lost a little bit on us. I guess go watch The Crown. It may, may help you. Uh, BBC. Um, but here, here uh, I do think architecture and, and certain aspects are, are can can help, but we need to be careful a little bit here, use the term bells and whistles. And when, when a church loses its focus on the fact that we are spiritually in the presence of Almighty God through Jesus Christ, then I think we default into trying to work that up through bells and whistles. And so there's an adopting of uh, of a variety of things to try to communicate uh, majesty in ways that actually divert our eyes from Jesus and the spiritual reality that we have of his taking us into his presence. And so the bells and whistles then become our focus, and those may be uh, priestly uh, robes and garments and candles and incense and uh, um, musical instruments, all of the things that in the Old Testament economy were given to look forward to the reality of Christ. Yeah. yeah so by faith, we, we lift our eyes to Christ to keep our eyes focused on him and... and uh, I don't. I don't want to say. Well, in one sense, it doesn't matter where you meet. I, beauty does mean something, and and so I, we want our, our new church building to have a certain amount of beauty and to communicate certain things, even in the way it's set up. But I don't want our focus to ever go away from Christ and, and His mediation. Long answer, but because of a great question. 
other questions or comments? I want to make sure to get to the last point, so let me go ahead. Uh, in worship, we sense sin and taste pardon. Uh, that's Sinclair Ferguson's way of describing this. We sense sin and we taste pardon. Did Isaiah sense his sin? He came into the presence of a holy God and as that focuses on a holy God, we can't also, we can't help but also recognize who we are. And he expresses that, I'm a man of unclean lips. And uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson calls attention to uh, what that means for Isaiah. He was a prophet of God. His, his lips were his his gift, his strength, and even that was shot through with sin. Uh, and I found that very interesting. It wasn't just those uh, those uh, those other things, his weaknesses or his common temptations. It was his strengths. They were also corrupted by his sin. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a dead man. It's a striking response to be caught up into the presence of such a glorious vision, to be in the presence of a holy God, to be part of that heavenly throne room and the worship of the angels you would think would be thrilling and exciting, something of a privilege. But Isaiah is terrified. Why was he terrified? Because he knew he was a sinner. And that without redemption, that he was a dead man. So there is a sense of sin that we have in the midst of our worship. We come into the presence of a holy God. And in fact, the nearer you come to the holiness of God, the greater the light that shines on us and the greater reality that we have that, that we are not holy. And uh, I often turn to Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, where he uses diverging lines to describe our growth and maturity so that over the course of our life, we are growing more and more sanctified, so there's some growth in that. But as we understand God more and more, the understanding of his holiness and our unholiness seems to diverge from our real, our practical holiness. And the distance gets greater and greater as we mature. So the nearer we come to God, the greater that sense of, of sin and need for Christ. And yet, what is communicated in worship is pardon. Not condemnation, it's pardon. And for Isaiah, it's communicated by the angel that that brings a coal from the altar of God where sacrifices for sin were made and touches Isaiah's lips. Significant again of Isaiah's expression of his understanding of the depth of his depravity and of his sin. And uh, so Isaiah is, is cleansed. And that's the proclamation of worship as well. And you'll hear it in the midst of our worship, too. You'll hear it 
uh, often in what's sometimes called the pastoral prayer or the, uh, the prayer right after our offering. There's a speaking to God and a confession of sin that we give corporately together. The elders and I will pray and we will we'll pray confessing that we are sinners, that we need forgiveness. And then we often will follow that confession with a giving thanks to God for the forgiveness that is given to us. Sometimes it's even proclaimed in, in the Psalms that we sing after that as well. I, thanksgiving for the forgiveness that we have received. So there's a taste of pardon. There is something excruciating and something glorious about this. Excruciating in that the unveiling of our, uh, of our sin, the unmasking of our sin, is, it, it hurts, doesn't it? Areas of our life where sin grips us, blinds us, condemns us, there's something of a personal devastation that that sin produces, and God confronts it, but he also forgives it, and it's so, it's glorious. In worship, it, uh, we are led to Christ, who is the only Redeemer. We are led into the presence of a holy God through the mediation of Jesus Christ, he has gone before. He has paid the sin. And we taste that in our worship. And so we worship because he is worthy. He is worthy is, uh, because of who he is and then what he has done, especially in the forgiveness of our sins. But one final quote from Ferguson, just to close. This, uh, there's something of an order of worship here that is surprisingly like the pattern of our church services. Our liturgy or our, our form of worship leads us into the presence of God. It discloses our sin in order to lead us to his grace and the pardon that is in Christ and prepares you to hear the voice of his word, which we'll come to in our next lesson where there's a proclamation of God's word. I've gone over just a little bit, so I'll close this now in prayer. God, we bless you for the forgiveness of our sins. Even now, we look forward to meeting in your presence. We do pray that you would prepare our hearts for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.